Hello and welcome to this episode of OPI Talk. I'm your host, Steve Hilliard, and my guest today is Simon Drakeford, CEO of London-based EO Group. One of the most high-profile figures in the European office products industry, Simon is widely regarded as a thought leader who is as passionate about the business supplies industry as he is a visionary. I recently caught up with Simon for our big interview in the next issue of OPI. That's the July-August issue, which will land on desks shortly. Here's an extract from that interview. So, Simon... um... Thank you for joining us today. But certainly, um, in your own words, it would be good just to get a very, very brief synopsis of um, the EO Group uh, as, as it currently stands, and any milestones that have occurred on the on the way to, on the journey to where we are now. Well, we're called the EO Group because uh, our kind of original mothership business was Euro Office, which is a pretty much online only stockless reseller of office supplies. Um, in uh, what about nine nine years ago, we launched a business called Office Power, and we thought there might be some confusion in the relationship between Office Power and your office. So we rebranded the business EO Group. We have three divisions in the EO Group. One is what we call our direct business division. So this is Euro Office and UK Office Direct. And they're both different brands, but online stock is resellers. And then we have Office Power which is our technology and services business where we support dealers, traditional dealers typically. And then we have our software business. The software platform is bespoke. It's called the PSP, the Power SaaS platform. And it's used by not only our direct businesses, not only our office power dealers, but actually used by individual independent licensees as well. So that all comes under the, the, the banner of the EO group. We're just over 20 years old. We went into Italy in, I can't actually remember exactly when, I think it might be 2009. We then, uh, in 2010-11, launched Office Power and went into Germany. That was a bit ambitious, so Germany didn't last that long. Something had to go. We're we're still a small kind of agile business, and we didn't have the bandwidth to manage both. And actually, the German market was more competitive than we thought. And another uh, key milestone is actually we, we divested or, or um, sold the Italian business in December 2019. I guess the uh, the MBO in, oh, crikey, last 11 years ago now was also a milestone for you personally. Uh, it was, yeah. So I hadn't necessarily anticipated being in the industry for, for, for this long. Yeah, so three, three and a half years after, after I joined... We swapped our investors and the right transaction for the time was to do an MBO. And I was very excited about that. And I'm still very well supported by a very strong board and a very supportive PE investors, growth PE investors, hasten to add, uh, who have been very good partners for me and my leadership team during the last decade. And I guess um, probably in the last year or two as well, it's uh, been important to have that support. Actually, the last year or two has been, yeah, for, for everyone, but particularly for us, very challenging. And when things are very challenging, you really rely on your support network. And, and I have to say that my board, I have a very, very smart and experienced chairman. And the board members from my PE firm are incredibly well experienced as well. So having that experience on my board, that guidance, that support, and the relationships that were bought, built up over the years meant we could have very effective, direct conversations and meant that we could uh, yeah we could get through it but yes it was tough and when things are tough you rely on those that support you what did you have to, to chop 
We pretty much chopped everything. We chopped our advertising spend, so our Google spend. We chopped about 30% of our fixed overhead, which was sad because we're a relatively small business with a strong culture and we build strong relationships with our people. So that was pretty difficult. We have a young dynamic workforce who are high, high demand because a lot of them work in e-commerce. So we had some natural attrition, which makes it easier, which is normal in our sector and our type of business. We put a hiring freeze in place. So the pain was twofold, having the difficult conversations with people that you really don't want to let go. And secondly, the extra bandwidth that people that are in the business had to take on because there were just less people, you know, in some cases doing the same tasks. And of course, the stuff that we couldn't reach. So the processes and stuff that we didn't have the resources to support. Okay. What was the rationale for cutting spend on um, on advertising? Some some might argue that was... Um... You know, kind of counterintuitive, really, given the, you know, the, the sort of work from home, the space that you occupy, being, being e-commerce, which you know, as it seems to have been one of the uh, more resilient channels of, yeah. of business. And we're a B two B business. We don't make money on consumers, so we therefore want to sell into offices. Average order size and gross margin are, are two of our, you know, two of our key KPIs. If you want, excuse the tautology and what we found is that people went home as we know and are still at home and that has two issues one is that that you consume about 60 percent less traditional stationery when you're working from home and secondly the cost of distribution is high for obvious reasons so that means that we can't you know and we tried we tried because we were you know desperate initially or or scared initially but you don't make money from selling in our business with our business model you do not make money servicing the or it's very difficult to make money servicing the the kind of consumer so we had to cut advertising spend because there was funny enough our traffic went up dramatically we saw massive spike in traffic but it was lower quality traffic in our in our core businesses it's not about volume it's about the quality of the traffic and and yeah. uh, what what drops out of, what drops out of the bottom end so we were cutting yeah can consumer to, to, to what extent has, you know, for example, Office Power, you know, one of your more recent initiatives, um, how, how important is that now? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the largest part of our business right now on Runway. The last time we did a big interview with you, I think it was around six years ago, and uh, I think you, you stated at the time that lack of awareness was um, the sort of biggest stumbling block for, you know, Office Power's sort of progression. Um, it seems like you've, you know, you've, you've, you've got it certainly out of first and second gear and probably are motoring along, um, you know, qu- quite nicely now. Um, you know, what, what's changed? We have got a good awareness of the brand. There are some significant misperceptions Unfortunately, it still exists as, as to what office power is. It's a, it's a difficult concept to explain simply. Well, here's, here's uh, your chance to um, you know, clear up those misconceptions. You know? I think people perceive it to be a kind of one-stop shop where you outsource everything. Really, office power is a technology and services platform. We're actually launching, a, a, we spent the last 18 months building out a whole new product, which we're launching pretty much over the next six weeks called Power Select. You still have all the technology, but you are able to select which services you want to outsource to us. Powerful or full power, which is what the majority of dealers use at the moment, is where you outsource uh, or, or we partner with you to give you our technology and some services, typically operational services, but some marketing services as well. With Power Select, you're able to choose which services you want. So it's a much more, I wouldn't say flexible, because actually Powerful or Full Power is quite flexible. 
but it's a more configurable service. Uh, and this will open up the market, particularly larger larger dealers who want our technology, but don't always want us to do do the operational services for them because they have their own scale and it and doesn't make sense. And then there's a, there's a kind of um, misperception that it's a one-size-fits-all, which is not at all. Even our office power as exists at the moment, distribution is configurable. Where you buy is configurable. So you can buy anywhere. You can distribute anywhere you want. So it's kind of sometimes positioned badly in the category of Nectar. Um, let's, let's stick with independent resellers. You know, we're um, reasonably bullish on, uh, on, on the future for some and, and less so on others seems to be. Yeah, I think that's true. I think I, I'm, I'm feeling like the fear of not changing for the first time for a while is greater than the, the fear of change. And I think what, what COVID has done is to address some of the inertia that exists in our sector. And I see that as really positive. And so I feel optimistic for those dealers that do a what I would call agile strategic planning and, and, and possibly restructure bits of their business that, that are not efficient. And I, and I believe the model for that is outsourcing. But I would say that because that's what I do in my business and that's a, <laughs> that's a product that I offer. But I think, yeah, there will, there will, there will be, without doubt, unfortunately some some challenges in all in all parts of our sector funnily enough i think the 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 top of the supply chain i think a lot of that pain has already been felt with you know and and you get a correction for example when a big company with regret disappears like spices you get a correction in the dynamic in supply and demand yeah. And that's, you know, that can be that can be really positive because you want stronger, you want a stronger supply chain. If it's too monopolistic, it can cause issues as well. Okay. I guess it would be odd if I didn't ask you about um, how that impacted your business. You know, when did uh, alarm bells first start ringing? Well, alarm bells ring the whole time when you outsource or they should be ringing the whole time because when you have a high dependency on, on another provider, then that's, a, that's something that you always have to focus on. And it's some sadness that I say that, that we were aware that Spices was, were challenged pre-pandemic. So you, you don't need to be a, a rocket scientist to work out when you put a, a, a huge decline in turn into highly leveraged asset-based lending businesses that there's going to be a challenge. Prior to COVID, about a year before we had taken a significant percentage of our spend and outsourced that through other suppliers, one of them being Val. And so we were uh, operationally plugged in um, and, uh, and had you know, kind of competitive commercial terms. So, so we could move, in fact, we could move the whole of the business very quickly, uh, you know, inside, inside two weeks because we had to. I have to say Val were very supportive during that period. It's challenging when you're... I wouldn't say monopolistic, but when you you know when you have a large amount of market share, because you sometimes get accused of or rumored to be behaving in a certain way. But we we found Val very supportive uh, during that period, and they continued to be so. So 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 was there an impact? Hundred percent, huge amount of disruption. We're where we were fighting fires all over the place. But could we optimize a different sourcing strategy quickly? Yes, we could. And were we supported by Val 100%? Yeah, so it could have been horrendous. But we, we, we had planned that scenario out. And we hadn't planned out COVID scenario, but we'd planned that scenario out. And uh, so luckily, we had plans in place. Okay. 
Um, you've um, touched on the sort of the larger players. Um, you speak, speaking about the sort of UK market specifically, you know, how do you see that landscape panning out for the uh, players that occupy, you know, let's call it the sort of the contract um, government, big business space? Well, I'm not an expert on this, Steve, because it's not something that we do. So I'm, I'm just going to offer a kind of uh, generic industry view. So just, just to qualify it, I think that the contract space is tough. And it's tough because I think Amazon are making good, good headway. I think it's tough because margins are, margins are so thin and volumes are, are low. So forget the financial gearing. You've got operational gearing that previously would allow you to turn a profit on thin margins because of the volume. If you drop the volume, then you have an operational challenge. So I think it's a difficult space to be in. I don't think there's an easy space to be in, but I think that's a particularly difficult space. Yeah. Okay. Um, we've got quite a long way into this interview without, um, well, without mentioning the word Amazon, but you have just done it. So let's let's go down that sort of um, that's that route for, for, for a while. Obviously, um, from a your office perspective, Amazon is a formidable competitor, but of course there are other other businesses now in that space. eBay, OnBuy is another sort of uh, player that I'm starting to hear a bit more about. How's that space going to sort of look for you? And uh, you know, do you ever foresee a situation where um, office power becomes really your raison d'etre and, and the your legacy your office business? You you just say we we can't compete. That's a really good question, Steve. Um, I'm going to answer. I think there's two questions in there. I think Amazon is formidable, to use your words. I think they're still not, and I say still not, because maybe they will become too dominating in our in your office space, which is servicing small businesses with credit and credit accounts and highly configured specific to our sector and our product range customer service digital customer service uh, because they are generic they sell anything i think that amazon business is making headway at the top of the market as, as we've seen i mean it is eating it is eating lunch in our space don't get me wrong but but not as much it is i think in the contract space and obviously it cleans up consumer we can't profitably service consumers so so yes it's it is, of course, a challenge. It's a formidable business in every sector, and our sector is no different. And, and in terms of the, the relationship between the business units, well, your office is still a is still a very big, successful, profitable business, and uh, obviously growing. But I think most businesses are growing at the moment. But office power is growing faster than your office, absolutely. Okay. All right. Um- I'm going to sort of switch switch back actually a bit on um, and, and talk about dealer groups. Well, that's, um, you know, you, you you've been sort of fairly critical of um, of, of dealer groups in the past, um, but you know, I think you were quoted as saying that they were the ugly warts on the side of the wholesaler. <laughs> that's just an interesting quote. Um, you know, what what are your views on the relevancy of um, of traditional you know dealer groups, whether they're um, you know cooperatives or you know, single shareholder uh, groups moving forward. We still have quite a lot of them in the UK, although we have seen, you know, a little bit of, uh, of a shakeout. Yeah, I mean, I, I did say that the ugly wards on the side of a wholesaler, and I slightly regret the strength of that quote, but, but it, it was about 12 years ago, which basically shows my age and probably the, the overstrength of, of the comment. But the logic, I think, still stands here, which is if you think what a what a dealer group or buying group or whatever it has to do, and actually a buying group is the better term, they have to add value in the supply chain. And if the value they add 
is the value that wholesalers are trying to add, then that's where the rather unfortunate kind of metaphor came for for, for the ad water on the side of a wholesaler, effectively a, a growth that the wholesaler can't can't control. I think the dealer group model, the concept of you know of grouping together, is is a positive one if it adds value. And I understand buying groups, and I think buying groups can be positive. I really can. I think a, a dealer group. And I'm not going to talk about specific data groups, but you really need to interrogate what, where, where they add value, if they add value, and what the cost of ownership is on that. And I'm, I'm not sure the cost of ownership is always clear, possibly by design. And I'm not sure, therefore, the value is clear either. And, and, but I definitely see some value in a buying group. Okay. Um- Buying groups um, you know, exist to, to a large extent because of the support and rebates and, and relationships with the vendor community. We haven't spoken much about vendors uh, yet in this interview. Um, yeah, what's your what's your view on, um, on on the vendor situation? Well, I'm going to take it as a, pro- a product discussion. I'm going to put my industry hat on as opposed to my own you know, own hat on. And as an industry, we are quite recessive or humble. We do talk ourselves down quite a lot. Maybe because we don't think our product is very sexy. But I have to say that coming from the mobile phone industry, possibly second to the relationship, particularly my children have with their mobile devices, <laughs> the relationship with your, with your work tools are, are very deep. And that includes, you know, stationary, etc. Um, it, and it's a massive market still. It's, it's a, it is a really big market. Yes, in chronic decline because of, you know, because of changing working behaviours and patterns but it's still massive. So the, the problem with in declining markets is that they get labeled as dogs. It's not a dog. It's a big, it's a big market. It just requires change and restructuring. Okay. Yep. But, I, but I have seen and really enjoy examples of how vendors have pivoted or pivoted some products during COVID. And I think that shows the entrepreneurship and dynamism that exists in our industry and we've seen you know dealers you know pivoting into into obviously into ppe but into other products and we've seen vendors changing the way that they manufacture product to to address a changing market so i will will very passionately with great conviction and fervor talk up some of the success stories of of how dynamic our sector has been during covid And, and i will always tell people and obviously with my boss hat on you know, I, I am very much rooted in you know, the, the supplies and stationary sector. And, and I, you know, I will vehemently defend those that categorize our sector as being uh, dull, small, insignificant. It's not. It definitely is not. Forget the product for, for a minute, because the product sometimes does create a, you know, confusion. We supply businesses, fact. And what we've seen during COVID is that businesses want different things or have gone different places, and we've still supplied them. So, you know, the business supplies kind of label is a good one. I, I think we need to, as a, as a culture, an industry culture, I think we need to be more bullish about what we do. Right. And typically we go, well, paper and, and pens aren't sexy, but I actually think what we do, I wouldn't say it's sexy, but what we do is impressive and important. Thank you for listening to this episode of OPI Talk. For more of the interview with Simon Drakeford, make sure you check out the July-August issue of OPI magazine. 
This content is only available to OPI subscribers. If you're not already a member of OPI, please go to our website, opi.net forward slash memberships. I hope you'll join us soon for another episode of OPI Talk. Thank you.